Amen. Well, it's good to be with you after a couple of weeks of vacation. The good news is I feel refreshed and invigorated and excited to be back in the church and be back in the pulpit. I can't tell you what a joy it is, what a privilege it is to bring the word of God to you. The first time I did a radio program, I remember sitting next to the DJ and I had done radio at television at at Penn State as a student and in interns, but to sit there and be interviewed by a, a DJ here in Pittsburgh years ago. And at one point he asked me to read the word of God. And as I was reading it, it dawned upon me that there would be nothing more I could do, no more important thing I could say over the airways than just read the word of God. What a privilege it is that we have God's word, that we can hear God's word and by his spirit believe it and obey it and do it and love it. And so I'm excited again to bring and to open God's word to you. Again, the good news is that I feel refreshed and excited. The bad news is that the first time that I rehearsed the sermon I'm about to preach to you, it took an hour and 21 minutes. (laughs) And it is Communion Sunday. So Lord willing, we'll be a little quicker here this morning. But last time we were in Genesis, a couple of weeks ago, we had finished up chapter 11, that genealogy, that record of God's faithfulness as we followed the line of Shem. God said he was the God of Shem. Because it was through Shem that the seed of the woman promised in the garden. We've got to see the connectedness of these promises. It's not like in the call of Abraham, God's about to do something entirely new. He's calling Abraham because he promised Eve that her seed would crush the head of the serpent. This is in fulfillment of that promise. This isn't something new. This isn't a new plan because, you know, Noah's generation failed. Or a new plan because Enoch's generation failed. This is God continuing to unfold and accomplish his purposes in the world. Abraham's call is in direct fulfillment that God is going to keep his promises all the way in the garden. The moment Adam and Eve sinned, when God came to him, them, he promised them a deliverer, a savior what we call a Christ, an anointed one. The seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. That was their hope. They worshiped God by faith in that promise. They worshiped God up until the flood of Noah, when the world had become so corrupt that there was only one man left who still believed that promise, who still worshiped. And God saved him in his house in the flood of Noah. And then we followed them another five generations after the flood to the time of Peleg. When once again the world became corrupted, this one united world, the salt lost its saltiness, the light lost its brightness, and they all together at the Tower of Babel said, let's do the opposite of what God said. God said, spread out, fill the world. We're going to come together and make a name for ourselves. And so once again, God had to judge. And this time he didn't destroy the world as he should have with another flood, which they deserved. But no, God brought a judgment of languages of separation the world is now separate into all these different people groups they had to divide they couldn't understand one another god did that intentionally we saw he made nations it was god who fathered nationalism god is not the father of globalism that's satan he's the father of nations That means division. That means misunderstanding. That means strife. That means conflict. And yes, and that's the only way man can keep himself from uniting together against God. It was a judgment, but it was a mercy. 
Because now that we have these different uh, uh, misunderstandings and mistrusts and strife and conflict, we also have a certain commonality and a certain cohesiveness and a certain codependence and security that we need to stay together. And the, the, the friction of different nations causes that. It keeps, as it were, man from stagnating into this great united rebellion against God again. And now God is about to, in our text, because it was his plan, it wasn't like when he sent the confusion at Babel that he didn't already know that, oh yes, in creating nations, I'm going to eventually pick one. I'm going to make a nation of my own. And that's what we're about to see in our text this morning. The blessing of Abraham. And in His blessing, how all of us are blessed. Let's pray as we turn to God's word. Father, again, we just want to pause for a moment. This is your word. We won't listen to it. We won't love it unless you are gracious to give us ears to hear and a heart to believe. And so do that, Lord. Remember your blood, Lord Jesus. You said you died. You would die to gather all nations to you. And so here we are in America asking you to gather us with believing hearts to the foot of the cross to believe and to be changed by your word. Do this because you are a God who keeps your promise. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hear now the word of the Lord from Genesis chapter 12, beginning in verse 1. This is God's holy and perfect word. Now the Lord had said to Abram, Get out of your country, from your family, and from your father's house to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation and you and make your name great and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and I will curse him who curses you and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram departed as the Lord had spoken to him and Lot went with him and Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. The word of the Lord. I want you to notice, first of all, this morning, a complete separation. I want you to notice a complete separation. Notice when God calls Abram, he says to him, from the more general to the more specific, get out of your country, from your family, yes, From your father's house. Reminds me of a little bit later when he will say to Abram, Take now your son, your only son, Isaac. From the general to the specific, right? There's no mistaking what God is telling Abram to do. And I want you to think about that. Leaving your country, leaving your family, your mishpacha, your clan, your tribe, your group. It doesn't mean nuclear family. He takes his wife with him. It means leaving your cohesive relative group that you're in. Clan would be the best word probably. And then, yes, even your father's house, which means leaving your brothers and sisters, leaving your aunts and uncles, leaving your parents and grandparents. Just your family, you and your wife. Of course, Abram is barren. His wife is barren. He has no children. And we saw that earlier in chapter 11. But God commands him to go. And it would have been very difficult for Abram to go, to leave everything. I remember when about seven years ago, well, not seven years ago, about seven years into the ministry, 
I was getting antsy and I wanted to sort of put my resume out there. You know, Bailey wasn't going to retire for probably another 10 years. And I'm not going to be an associate pastor for that long. It was about, uh, actually, I'm sorry, it was about five years into the ministry. And I was thinking, I got to activate my, my resume. And immediately, my wife said to me when I sprung this on her, you're going to take our kids from their family and from their school and from our church. And we're going to go somewhere and we don't know where. And all of those concerns were real, right? I mean, to leave your, your family, to leave your relatives, that's a big concern. To leave your, your church and your school and your friends and your community and everything that you have and know and go someone else. And I wasn't even talking about leaving the country, right? And uh, in the providence of God, the economy tanked that year. I think it was like 2007. And that's when we had the big recession or whatever. And I, that's when I'm like, well, obviously this isn't a good time to be moving. So I sort of cooled it from there. And so the Lord had other plans for us. But God tells Abram to leave, right? And it would be hard for any of us to do that, to pick up and go somewhere where you don't know anybody. And in America, that's not that big a deal. I mean, when you think about it, it's a big deal. It is, but not compared to what Abram had to do. When he had to leave his family and his father's house, and his country, and go, notice, somewhere that I'll show you. He's leaving his security. He's leaving his protection. I mean, in that day and age, it's not like today, where because of Christianity, the whole world basically knows all humans are human beings, you know, equal, equal rights, and so forth. And so you go to any country, you can expect to be treated a certain way. That wasn't true then. He goes to another city, another nation. This is probably 170 years after the Tower of Babel. There's a vast amount of civilization has taken place in cities and countries. Think about how much this nation has changed in 170 years ago. 170 years. 170 years ago, it was the Civil War. There were many states that didn't even exist yet. Go to them now and you'll see their capital cities and their, their infrastructure. It looks like they've been there for centuries. They haven't. It's only been 170 years and less since a lot of our states are even founded and became a state. So in 170 years, all kinds of stuff has happened in the world. And Abram can go somewhere and he can be considered inferior, less than human, an object to be sacrificed to our pagan gods. That's what he's going to. It's not moving to Canada. Oh, gee, I might not find work for a while. What if I have visa problems? He's called to go somewhere. He doesn't even know where. And he might be killed because he's got no protection now. And there are no promises of governments in that world. There are brigands and robbers and bands and murderers and false religions and all, everything else. And yet God tells him to go. Get out of your country. Get out from your family and from your father's house. God speaks to Abram. This would have been the word of God coming to him really and truly objectively. I want to make sure I emphasize that. This isn't, you know, I think God is telling me that I should do this or that. Abram really heard from God audibly. God spoke to him. The New Testament says it this way. In Acts chapter 7, the God of glory appeared to our father Abram when he was in Mesopotamia before he dwelt in Haran. That's why the New King James translates it, God had said. 
he had said previously, back when they were in Ur of the Chaldees. And both Genesis 15 and Nehemiah 9 confirmed that, yes, God originally called Abram when he was still in Ur of the Chaldees and so forth. And there's a lot of other little textual issues that I'm just not going to get into today about how old Terah was and so forth. We just don't have time. You can see me afterwards if you're concerned about those things. But there are clear answers to some of the things that the critics find in this text. But I'm just going to go right into the doctrine. Abram had to leave again, uh, and, and it was a much greater deal. But the biggest thing, it seems to me, was that Abram doesn't know where he's going. I mean, do you see that in the text? Get out from your country, from your family, and from your father's house to a land that I will show you. Now, it's one thing to take your family and to quit your job and to move somewhere where you don't know anybody, to even leave the country. But it's another thing to have no plan at all. To not even know where you're going to go. He has no idea. God said, I'll show you when you get there. You know, it's like a little kid holding the dad's hand. Where are we going? I'll tell you when we're there. And what do you do? Well, if you believe God, you trust in him, and that's enough. But it reminds me a little bit of, number one, there's a sense in which we all have to do this. We all have to trust God, and we don't know where it's going, right? When I was converted to Christ, I began to walk according to his word as far as I could understand it. And I had a degree in radio and television. And so I thought, well, I want to work at the Christian television station. So I applied at Cornerstone and I got hired as maintenance. And then on-call camera and then part-time camera as I proved myself and then full-time camera. And that's where I met Robin and we got married. And I'm reading the scriptures and we're going to the Pentecostal Charismatic Church and the source of the station is Pentecostal Charismatic and more and more I'm convinced that that's not the sound understanding of the scriptures and then one time on Cornerstone I hear R.C. Sproul right and I think wow there's somebody else out there that believes the Bible like I do I'd never heard of the Reformed faith the Reformed Church the Reformed theology none of that I just heard R.C. say things that I was seeing in the scripture and that's all I had was the scripture and so we started to go, and, and about, it was probably a good year or two before R.C. on one of the tape series that I had bought for him. Actually, I had bought for my mom to listen to because I was turning other people on to R.C. And he mentions on that series that he's an ordained minister in the Presbyterian Church in America, right? And I'm, you know, wow, okay, there's a whole church out there that believes the Bible like this? So I got in the yellow pages, 1990s, and I found the nearest PCA church, and that Sunday, I visited it six days before Robin and I were getting married in the charismatic church. And I visited that church. And after we got back from our honeymoon, I said, you know, let's go every other Sunday because Robin wasn't ready to join. That was, to put it mildly, uh, another church after she had grown up in this other church. And I'm the new Christian, Johnny come lately, converted at 20. So every other Sunday for three years. And as we're doing that, I'm taking classes at the seminary. And people were saying, you're called and, and so forth. And I didn't want to hear that. I was taking classes because I loved the Bible. And I wanted to learn scripture. That was the only reason I was doing it. The, the pastor put the idea in my head. He goes, you know, Ray, you're reading the Bible. You're reading all these works. You're reading. By then I was reading Augustine and Calvin and Luther and Edwards. And he said, you ought to take a class. And it just was like, wow, I can do that. I can take a class at a seminary. So I took one, then I took another, then I took another, and I'm taking these classes. And eventually it got to the point where we weren't going to be able to do that anymore. We we had two kids now. I'm working full time. I'm taking classes at a seminary. 
even, and, and in my mind, I'm thinking, well, maybe a, a master's in theology, because I didn't want to just waste, you know, our money and time, that maybe I'll use this as a degree, because it, you know, at a certain point, I felt like I needed to at least have a plan, but at no point was it the ministry, so we're, you know, I'm doing that, I'm thinking that, and then it got to the point where I said to Robin, I can't do it anymore, it was too hard to work full-time, and to be a full-time husband and father, and to take these classes, so I was going to quit, and and she said, well, why don't you just take this class in the spring? She saw that, you know, in the plan, I needed a premarital class. So I could take one class in the spring. Then we were going to pray about it and really consider it. Because I had been going now several years part-time. And to just stop, you know, I thought, well, maybe someday, you know, when I retire, I'll, I'll go back again. But um, so we decided to do that. And it was at that time that our elder at New Life Presbyterian Church in Harrison City called Robin and said, what would you think if the church would pay raise, pay your bills and pay raise tuition so that Ray could quit his job and go to seminary full time? And that's what they said. And, you know, it was really scary because, number one, I didn't believe that I was called. I didn't want to be a pastor. And I had been in television for 10 years. That's really the thing. I had a 10-year career in television. How am I going to walk away from that? Okay, for two years, the church is going to pay our bills. Then what happens? You see, I don't know where it's going. If I step out and do that, I don't know what comes next. And that was the huge fear for me. Who's going to provide for my kids and my wife? What happens when seminary is over and I have a degree and no job? And I had a you know, 10-year career in television. Robin was working one day a week. We had the, what we still call the house of our dreams in Harrison City. What happens next? And yet I want to tell you that that's in a sense where all of you are. You know, God calls you. I mean, simple things. God calls husbands to love their wives as Christ loved the church. If you really wrestle with what that means, that's really scary. Because you've got to really let go of self. Because it's laid down your life for her. That's the kind of love. Where's that going to go? How does that end up? How can you trust God? Where does that, where's that going? If I begin to do that, where's it going to lead me? Because I'm not in control anymore. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Wait a minute. How can I do that? Where's that going to take me? Where am I going with that? How can I trust the word of God when I don't know where it's going to take me? That's what God's telling Abram. In a much greater way, right? In a much greater way. Life and death. Leave everything you know and go. Which way? God doesn't tell him. In God's sovereignty, Abram begins to go the trade routes and works himself down. He could have gone further west into the the kingdoms that were up in that region. Or he could have gone south towards Egypt and he ends up going south in the sovereignty of God. But what I want you to notice is that Abram obeys God because God said there needs to be a separation. We can't serve God and be part of the world. Now, we are to be in the world, but we are not to be of the world. And that's what God was going to do with Abram. He was going to take this nationalism that he has created and use it in order to create a separate nation that wouldn't be infected by all of the wickedness that would have its own. Because with nation, the word nation means government and land. In the very least, it means that. Territory and government. There's no nation that doesn't have a territory and a government. That's a separation. God can protect 
and develop and cause uh, a people to begin to follow him and not have the corruption that happened before the flood where the sons of God marry the daughters of just men and they all become corrupt and no one believes in God anymore and God has to wipe out the world. Or at the Tower of Babel when they're all united and they're all one people and they're all one race and there's no separations and again the church has become like the world and they're all going to rebel and God had to send a confusion to separate them again. And so now God's going to separate a nation and it has to be again a complete separation. We have to give ourselves entirely to God according to his word. Secondly, I want you to notice a passive exaltation. I want you to notice a passive exaltation. You say God is all powerful. God is all knowing. Why couldn't he just make Abram a nation where he is? Why couldn't he tell Abram where they're going? Well, for a simple reason. This isn't for God. God isn't doing this for God. Oh, God needs a people. God's doing this for Abram. And so God is trying, God is testing Abram's affections. Leave everything. Go somewhere that you don't even know where. In other words, am I really first in your life, Abram? Can you really trust me more than what a lot of people would say is common sense? You don't go somewhere not knowing where you're going. But if God speaks, that's not irrational. There's nothing more rational than to listen to God. If God says one thing and the whole world says something else, it is eminently and entirely rational to listen to the creator over the creature. But Abram had to make that decision. He had to believe that. He had to live it out. John Calvin says it this way. This is the true proof of our obedience when we are not wise in our own eyes, but commit ourselves entirely to the Lord. Abram has to exercise. Faith in God's word, even more than providing for his own security and life. He has to go and believe God. And so that's what he does. And and don't make any mistake here that somehow God found Abram as somehow better than anyone else. You know, I've heard that story before. I think I mentioned to you, I've heard ministers say, well, God might have offered this to four or five other guys before he found someone to say yes. That's complete nonsense. God's grace made Abram. Abram did not make himself worthy of having God's grace. Before God's grace found Abram, we looked at this last time, he and his fathers lived across the river worshiping other gods, Joshua says. Terah, Joshua says. Joshua uh, 24, read it. That your fathers and Terah worship. Terah is Abram's father. They're worshiping other gods. They're corrupting God's worship. It was God's grace that saved and found Abram. Even as it was God's grace that saved and found Noah. It wasn't like Noah alone earned deliverance from the flood. It's God's grace that saves and keeps his people. Calvin says it this way. Quote, Abram was plunged in the filth of idolatry. You you know why I read Calvin, don't you? Because... He doesn't water anything down, does he? Oh, was Abraham actually corrupting? Abraham was plunged in the filth of idolatry. And now God freely stretches forth. There was nothing in Abraham. God freely stretches forth his hand to bring back the wanderer. It's interesting that Calvin would use that word wanderer. Deuteronomy 26.5, God speaks to Israel saying, Your father was a wandering Aramean. He was a wandering Arab when I found him, when I rescued. Deuteronomy 
26.5. Your father was a wandering Aramean, a Syrian about to perish. See, that would have insulted any Jewish pride. Our father, Abram, was a Syrian? Yeah, actually he was. In fact, Ezekiel says it even stronger. Ezekiel 16 twice says of Abraham, your father was an Amorite and your mother a Hittite. Twice in Ezekiel. Who made the Jews the Jews? God did. It was God's grace that made them a nation. They were just another group of Syrians, another group of Arabs. They were Hittites. They were Amorites. It's interesting when God makes the first promise to Abram. And I say here, you know, this point is a passive exaltation. There are seven passive promises made in our text to Abram. Seven. And they're all passive. And the first one is, I will make you a nation. The word there is goy. And again, that would insult any future Jewish pride because, you see, the Jews were the Am, the Amarets, the people of the land. The Gentiles and the pagans were the Goyim. Goy is nation, Goyim, the nations. God says to Abram, I'm going to make you a Goy. You're just one nation among the Goyim, but you're going to be my nation. It's because of what God is doing. Not because of Abraham's blood. And certainly not because of the blood of his descendants. Seven passive uh, promises. In Hebrew it reads like this. And the Lord God said to Abram, get out of your country from your family, from your father's house to a land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation. Listen. And it's these and phrases that identify the blessings. And I will bless you. And then it says this, and I will make your name great. For stylistic purposes, English leaves out the third I. It's there in the Hebrew. I will bless you. I will make you a name. I'm sorry. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great. What do they do at Babylon? I'm sorry, at the, the, the Tower of Babel. We're going to make a name for ourselves. What does God say to Abram? Completely abase yourself. Completely humble yourself. Forget Figuring out or even protecting yourself. Leave everything you know. Go somewhere. I'm not even going to tell you where. And then I will make your name great. The thing that we think we can get in sin is the thing that God will give in faith. When you believe his word, that's when you get a great name. Not when you try to do it in your works. When you think you can do it. That's what they thought, the Tower of Babel, and they were one. They were united, the whole world. What we're all trying to do today in the, you know, the secular media, oh, if we could only just be one, yeah, we'd build another Tower of Babel to rebel against God. That's what we would do. There's no salvation in outward unity. There's only salvation in inward conversion. If we could do everything on the outside, we can't change a single heart. Only God can change the heart. God is promising Abram to make him a nation, to bless him, to make his name great. And then the fourth and middle blessing, you shall be a blessing. Some see this as a command. It certainly can be an imperative. It is an imperative if you look at the rabbinical tradition of pointing. But it's also a Hebrew imperfect, which just means you shall be a blessing. My problem with interpreting it as a command is what people do to it today. It's been said by many today, some in the progressive wing, that this is the Great Commission. 
This is the, it's not Matthew 28. Go and make disciples, teaching them, baptizing them, you know, my word. All that I have commanded you because I have all authority. This spiritual creation of a church in every nation. Make disciples of all nations. And that does not mean make the nations disciples, please. I'll do the Greek with you if you don't believe that. It's not what it means. Convert the nations. Make disciples of all nations. God, that's the great commission. But no, they say this is the great commission. You be a blessing. See? You get out there. And with your good works and with your love, change the world. You can do it. God has delegated it to you. Do it by your works. You go be the blessing. They'll even say that's what it means to be salt and light, right? Your goodness, your saltiness, your goodness, your light. Is that what God's saying to Abram? Go and change the world by your works. By the way, that's what the way modern Judaism understands that. When the works of the Jewish people are good enough, Messiah will come. When they're a blessing enough, Messiah will come. A lot of the progressive church, same thing. When we, you know, get together and, and do our, you know, our roads and our job programs and our education and, and save the environment and, and you know, edu- uh, all the things that we're going to do together, homes for the homeless, food. When we solve all of our outward problems, you know, then the kingdom will come. Go make the kingdom come. That's the great commission of the church. Do it by your works. Be a blessing. You do it. You know, I've had to speak at three graduations. It's been my privilege to speak at three graduations. Two Christian schools and and once at the seminary that I graduated from. I was the the speaker for the graduating class. And I've listened. I listened to a lot of graduation speeches to see what should I say. And it's funny. Almost all the time you'll hear in graduation speeches that this exhortation, this this like uh, emotional development of this great point to try to inspire the graduating class to go out and change the world. And there'll be this great uh, uh, encouragement to do so. But really and truly, when you think about it, it's this enormous pressure. You've got to do it, seniors. Go out and change the world. Go out and fix what our generation screwed up. And what all the generations before you have failed, all of them. But now we're going to put it on you. Go out and fix the world with your newfound knowledge and your degrees in hand and your goodness. We'll Christianize a little bit in your, your Christianity. Go out and save the world. Be the blessing that everybody needs. Right? You know what I said in my three speeches? You can't save anything and you can't change the world. But you know the one who can. And he doesn't do it by your works. He does it by believing in faith. Abram was called to believe. The only thing that Abram's actually called to do is leave everything. It's like the call to repent, right? I'm a sinner. All of my righteousness is filthy rags. I leave all hope in myself and I believe in your grace in Christ. I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and I will make your name great and you shall be a blessing. The ESV actually translates that last blessing. And so that you will be a blessing. I like that because it makes it clearly passive. I will make your name great so that... You will be a blessing. Not that you're going to be the blessing. It's because of what I'm doing. That you're going to be the blessing. 
We are not called, beloved, to change the world. We can't change the world because it begins with new hearts and you can't give new hearts. We're called to believe and to witness to the God who promises to change hearts and then lives. God was not telling Abram to go and bless everyone because of how good he was. He was promising him ultimately the Christ. That's what he was doing. That through you will come the Christ. He doesn't say it here. You will be a blessing. How? God doesn't say how I'll be a blessing. It it comes later in the repeated promises that it will be through your seed. That's why we read from Galatians chapter 3. Did you see how Paul interpreted? Paul's looking at this text. And Paul says in Galatians 3.8, which we read earlier... And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith. You see, this is about justification by faith, not making the world Eden again. Foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith. Preached the gospel to Abraham. It was the gospel that Abraham was getting. Beforehand saying, in you all the nations shall be blessed. That's interesting. Because in our text it says, in you all the families of the world will be blessed. I read one commentator, not a commentator, but a a guy who likes to write a lot, saying that that's a promise of family salvation. In you all the families will be blessed. That's not nuclear family. If he even knew Hebrew, he would know that. It's mishpaha again. It's clan. It's not a promise of family salvation. In you all the families, you know, mommy, daddy, baby. This is lineage. This is clan. The families of the earth. The families of the Germans. The families of the Syrians. And you all, the families, will be blessed. It's the promise of the Christ. This is the gospel. It was in Abram's greater son that the blessing would be realized. But this idea that, again, we are to do it, that's the law. Are we commanded to build schools and to, you know, uh, help with roads and, and do things that are good, philanthropy, and help the poor? Absolutely. That's called the law. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. That's the law. We're all called to obey the law. That's not the gospel. That's not, here's how you're saved. Here's how you're changed. Here's how you become like God. You don't do that by the law. You do that by believing in the word. The gospel is the word of God going out that you believe and you're saved and you receive entirely passive. Yes, in the law, we are called to go out and obey. No one's going to be saved by your obedience. No one's going to be changed by your obedience. No one's going to be brought closer to God unless God, by his grace, gives the new birth. And so thirdly, I want you to notice a stated evaluation, a stated evaluation God now says he's going to relate to the entire world through Abram, through his people of faith. I will bless those who bless you, and him who curses you, I will curse. We're going to see this in the rest of this text. I'm going to really skip ahead here. When Abram goes down to Egypt, and Pharaoh innocently takes Abram's wife because he lets on that she's just his sister, just his sister. God curses Pharaoh's house. Why? Because he's going to relate to everyone through Abram. Why? Because he's relating to everyone through Christ. Christ is Abram's greater seed. How can God even take Abram as a servant? Because Abram's sins are washed away in Christ's coming blood. And God has a view to that. And Abram is trusting in God's promise. He doesn't know that his son's name is going to be named Jesus and born in Bethlehem. But he knows that the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. And he knows it's coming through him. 
And God now is promising from now on, I'm going to treat everybody through you. And so God blesses those who bless him. We're going to see in Genesis 14, Lord willing, when Aner and Eschol and Mamre ally with Abram, they're blessed with all this spoil from the one war. And when, when Jacob goes to work for Laban, Laban even confesses, I know it's because of you that the Lord has blessed my house and all that I have. And when Joseph goes down into Egypt, Joseph's presence brings blessing on the jailer and then blessing on Potiphar's house, blessing on all of Egypt. Because when he is treated in a decent way, anybody who keeps him in a decent place, God's blessing. And so God's going to relate to that. And I think this is true to this day. I think the nations that welcome Christianity are blessed. You want to know why the, the nations in the West are blessed, why we have this blessed tradition going back to Europe? Because Europe received the gospel and other continents didn't. And now many of them are still, you know, who wants to go to Iran to get some surgery done? Or would you like to leave everything and go to Iran? You know, uh, Phil testified how a family had to leave Iran because they were going to take the kids away because he was teaching them Christianity. It doesn't happen in America. But that happens there because, again, they never received the gospel. And so God still blesses those and curses those depending upon how they receive his children. And I'm concerned for America's future in that respect. Because we are not embracing the gospel in the, in the church anymore. We are beginning to persecute that. And that can only mean more and more judgment on America. And we've already seen it. So this is a stated evaluation. God will treat all people through Abram. Fourthly and lastly, a future consummation. A future consummation. Abraham doesn't prove his worthiness in this text. He doesn't do anything in this text. He leaves. He goes. He takes Lot with him. Notice, Lot's grown by this time because his father would have been born much earlier than Abram. And that's part of the way of harmonizing the text. But as we read earlier, Hebrews 11.8 says, By faith Abram obeyed when he was called to go out to the place which he would receive as an inheritance. And listen, and he went out not knowing where he was going. That's what Hebrews 8 says. Hebrews 11.8. But then it says this, By faith He dwelt in the land of promises as in a foreign country, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. For he waited for the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. Is Abram's ultimate hope in this world? No. Does Abram receive any of the blessings that God promises him? Does he get a great nation? No. Does Abram's name get great? No. Are all the peoples of the entire world blessed in Abram before he dies? No. Most people don't even know who he is. Few people in, in the Middle East. All of these promises come to pass well after he's dead. The only thing Abram owns in the land is a burial plot that he himself buys with his own money. And his wife is buried there and he is buried there. He doesn't get the land. He doesn't get the nation. He doesn't get the great name. He doesn't get kings. He doesn't get all the world blessed in him. But he believes that that will happen. It'll happen in the future. It'll happen when the Christ comes. That was Abram's faith. That the God who will not give to me what he has promised me now will do it someday. And beloved, that puts us exactly back in the same situation with Abram. God has promised you eternal life. 
God has promised you bodies that will never grow old, that will never get sick, that will never die. He's promised you a new heavens and a new earth. He's promised you righteousness. He's promised to be in you, to be in his presence forever and ever, to be with all of the saints, to live forever in his glory. And you're not going to receive any of it until after you die. And yet God calls you to live in the light of those promises. This is where, yes, Abraham is the father of the faithful, but he is also the example that we are to believe that knowing our hope is in a future post-mortem consummation. Can you say yes to the word of God and just live by faith? To live by faith in what God has said. In spite of your many ongoing sins, many failures, many faults, you never bring any of God's blessing to pass this idea of your faithfulness can call down God's blessing is trusting in your works plain and simple it's legalism if I'm faithful God will save my family guaranteed that's legalism your faithfulness hasn't a drop of actual pure goodness in it if God were to give any one of us according to our faithfulness he would give us hell what's your best work deserve is it perfect and even if it was How many? How many failures did you have this year as a parent? 20? Maybe 19 was the cutoff for faithfulness. I don't know. What does faithfulness mean? Beloved, we don't trust in ourselves. Do we obey God? Yes. I don't trust in any of my obedience. I trust in the God who has promised me eternal life after I die. If you believe that, if you have the courage to live that way, never realizing it in yourself, knowing you can't do it, then you too are a child of Abraham because you too are a child of faith. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord God, that you chose Abraham when there was no good thing in him and that, Lord God, there never would be. There never would be a single thing by which Abram would earn a single one of your promises. And Father, we confess that we've never done anything by which we can earn a single one of your promises to us. You give them to us by grace. You give them to us by the righteousness of Christ. And it is not our faithfulness but yours, O God, that can save anyone. And so, Father, help us to believe to give you all the glory and to live for you no matter what we face in this world, knowing that you are the God who keeps his promises. In Jesus' name, amen.